Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello and welcome to a special January 6th edition of the week-to-week political roundtable from the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm John Zipperer, your host for week-to-week and the club's vice president of media and editorial. Now we're gathered here virtually at the beginning of a new year. And the reason for this special program is because of something I suspect will go on commemorating for years to come. I refer, of course, to the NFL playoffs. And as someone who grew up in Green Bay, Wisconsin, I was pleased yesterday when I saw the term Green Bay sweep trending on Twitter because I was sure it referred to the Green Bay Packers sweeping the NFL playoffs. Could still happen, but it turns out the term actually refers to the plan by former Trump aide Peter Navarro to reverse the results of the presidential election. I'm sure the Vikings would like to reverse the results of Sunday's game against the Packers. That's not going to happen. But today we're going to talk about whether reversals in American elections and even democracy itself is possible or even probable. So let's get started by meeting our panelists. First, Melissa Kane is a political analyst and attorney and a frequent week-to-week panelist. Welcome back, Melissa. Thanks for having me. Joining our panel for the first time, but no stranger to the Commonwealth Club, is Dr. Francis Fukuyama, Senior Fellow at Stanford University's Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies and Director of the Ford Dorsey Masters in International Policy. You can follow him on Twitter at Fukuyama Francis. So welcome, Frank. Good to have you with us. Thanks very much, John. And last but definitely not least is Tim Miller. He's a contributor to The Bulwark, an MSNBC political analyst, host of Not My Party on Snapchat. You can follow him on Twitter at TimoDC. Hello again, Tim. Hey, John. So let's get started. One year and just a couple hours ago, I was on a Zoom staff meeting, as many of us are these days, and one of my colleagues texted me that there was a crowd attacking the U.S. Capitol. And so I became one of millions of Americans and people around the world watching with disbelief as the situation unfolded right before our eyes, getting worse by the hour. So in his speech this morning, President Joe Biden said that Donald Trump prepared for January 6th for months, building up the big lie about a stolen election. Tim, I want to start with you. What do we know about what led up to January 6th in terms of planning or actions that were taken? Significant amount. Uh, you know, I think this is the most relevant part as we look back on it um, a year out, uh, because I think that a lot of folks, particularly on the right, um, particularly my former you know, colleagues and what you know used to be the establishment of the Republican Party, you know, want to downplay this for obvious reasons, right? Like want to kind of provide a cover story that this was a one-off, that this, you know, was you know, kind of a, a rally that got out of hand, um, you know, that this was not a legitimate attempt to overturn our democracy, you know, that we shouldn't overreact, we shouldn't be commemorating it in, in this way. You've seen a lot of commentary to that effect today um, on, on the center right, and that's just not not true. Uh, the events of January 6th were an inevitable consequence of a series of actions that the then president of the United States was taking, along with an entire media ecosystem that supported him. There was a Stop the Steal tour, you know, that, that had members of Congress participate in it, that had an official podcast run by the president's former um, chief strategist, Steve Bannon. Uh, you know, there were uh, efforts within the state legislatures. Uh, obviously, the president was lobbying various state legislatures to to overturn elections in their states. Obviously, that there were the, the works being done in the courts. Uh, we've later learned in the Department of Justice, there were officials looking for ways to overturn uh, the election. Jeffrey Clark 
Uh, and, and as you pointed out, John, in the lead, uh, you know, I'm working for next week on an article for the Bulwark about about Steve Bannon and, and Peter Navarro and their so-called Green Bay Suite. Uh, you know, they planned it out in the open. They admitted that they planned it out in the open. That the, the, their strategy was maybe kind of dumb, which I think is why you know some people want to minimize it today. It was not a plan that was very likely to work, given how much Joe Biden won the election by. Uh, but it was a real plan. And, and you know, they wanted to uh, buy enough time to send, uh, you know, the, to challenge these, to challenge the election results, send the results back to the states, you know, in the hopes that, you know, that some of these states, you know, there, there would be enough gridlock that it would throw the election to the House of Representatives where Republicans had a majority of states. Uh, so, you know, th- that, you know, I, I think that the, both the plan to overturn the election was multifaceted. In addition to, you know, the incitement and the riling up of millions of people to convince them that the election was being stolen from them, that they should show up on the Capitol that day um, to to try to pressure the vice president. Um, you know, that was a concerted, you know, media and communications effort. So so it was it was multi pronged. And, and, you know, to be honest, all of that. Despite what happened on January 6th, all, all of that at different varying levels is ongoing today. And there remain millions of people who believe that the election was stolen from them. Donald Trump continues to tell them that. And, you know, I, I don't we are certainly not you know out of the woods. This anniversary is not an end date to look back at something in the past. It's a, it's a look at something that's ongoing. Frank, you wrote in The New York Times this week, quote, the Republican Party, far from repudiating those who initiated and participated in the uprising, has sought to normalize it and purge from its own ranks those who were willing to tell the truth about the 2020 election as it looks ahead to 2024 when Mr. Trump might seek a restoration, unquote. Um, could you talk a bit more about that and, and maybe give us a, a kind of on the heels of what Tim just said, give us a bit of a report card on the health of this party and the system as far as dealing with this kind of an insurgency? Well, the report card for the Republican Party is an F, or I don't know if you can get a lower grade than an F. Uh, and that's really the most uh, discouraging thing. Uh, you know, these incidents have happened of extremism in the past. It's not the first time that you've had kind of right-wing nationalists uh, that have done crazy things. You had Joe McCarthy in the 1950s. Uh, you had Richard Nixon trying to abuse the system. But in those prior cases, basically the adults... Uh, in, in both of those earlier ones, the adults in the Republican Party eventually decided enough is enough and we're going to have to repudiate uh, those actions. Uh, in Nixon's case, they uh, walked away such that he uh, you know, was forced to, forced to resign. What's happened is the op- opposite uh, this time around. Uh, a number of Republicans, Mitch McConnell, Kevin McCarthy, all condemned what had happened on the day itself but then one by one, they all flipped uh, in the coming days and months uh, and started to minimize the attack or claim that it was actually inspired by Antifa or all these other you know, ridiculous uh, theories. And the reason they were doing it was not that they actually believed any of this. They saw that the Republican base had been completely converted by uh, Donald Trump into this false uh, belief and this false narrative about the stolen election. I think the single biggest challenge that we face, which is an ongoing constitutional crisis, is the fact that Republican legislators in many states like Texas, Florida, Arizona, uh, and so forth, 
are changing the laws in a couple of ways. I mean, they're trying to restrict access to the vote, especially on the part of African-Americans and other likely Democratic voters. And they're trying to change the rules under which the electoral slates will be determined in the next presidential uh, election that would basically award themselves the ability to overturn a, a popular vote. Uh, so in other words, they're planning a repeat. Not only have they not repudiated January 6th, they're actually planning, you know, for a contingency where they may have to do it again uh, in 2024. And this time they're not going to, they won't fail uh, because they'll um, uh, have appointed all of the key election officials with loyalists. And that's really the, you know, I think the present, the clear and present danger that the country uh, is in right now. Melissa, I know you've been researching and, and delving further into the U.S. Constitution, but um, what safeguards are there that might be used to prevent such a future thing? Or um, what built-in elements there are, if you will, exacerbating some of these problems, kind of going on the heels of, of the issue of the states having kind of a, so much responsibility and, and, and control over the elections for, for many reasons, is there stuff that Congress can do without changing the Constitution? Or, you know, can they pr protect the votes of people who need to vote? Can they, uh, you know, change the way states, uh, you know, elect their, you know, select their, their uh, electoral votes? Well, to some degree, yes, but they don't have carte blanche to do that kind of thing. And um, I don't want to put words in um Dr. Fukuyama's uh, mouth about this, but I think in terms of a constitutional crisis, the issue is that the constitution does not really provide guardrails. It just says the states will figure out the electors and let us know. And in, and in part, that was because at the time, remember the constitution itself was basically um, sort of a power grab at the time from the states. And so they still, they couldn't be too heavy handed with the states. And so they really gave the states a lot of leeway and to determine how they um, come up with their electoral college votes. And so however the states do it is kind of, you know, going to be left alone unless it runs into a particular right um, under, um, you know, sort of various amendments to the constitution. So if you have, so for example, we had certain voting rights laws that were in place um, to protect African-Americans because there was an equal protection problem when, you know, we, when the, you know, basically the Congress had found that there was a violation of people's federal rights and un, under certain state laws. And so they were allowed to sort of intervene there. But aside from sort of demonstrated instances of disenfranchisement that violate equal protection laws or other kinds of rights under the Constitution, there really isn't a lot of place for the federal government to step in. Now, they've tried to in the past, and they are trying to right now with a um, with a bill that's been held up that I think there's going to be a renewed push for, um, but that will probably be challenged legally as well. And so the crisis may be the fact that there aren't a lot of guardrails in the Constitution, and the push may be to put some of that into the Constitution and maybe give the federal government a little more power when it comes to state rules around, you know, the nitty-gritty of Election Day. Recently, uh, former San Francisco Mayor Willie Brown told the New York Times 
that San Francisco's vaunted Democratic Party machine has no bench. It has lots of people with ideas, but none able to carry them out after, you know, I guess after the mayor, it was kind of like a, a weak bench. Tim, speaking nationally, is the Democratic Party up to the task of waging a, what could be a long-lasting battle for the heart and soul of America? I'm concerned about that. Uh, I'm, I'm concerned about that. Um, I think that, um, you know, that, that in, in some ways there, there's kind of this parallel to, I think, what a lot of climate activists feel, right? That we're in this existential crisis and, and that sometimes the Democratic politicians pay lip service to the fact that we're in an existential crisis, but then their actions don't sort of meet that. I, I think that, that there's a parallel here to, I think, how a lot of us who are deeply concerned about democracy and in and, and this country feel, that, that we are facing right now a, you know, a, a very dangerous moment uh, looking ahead to the 2024 election and 2028 elections, um, and that, you know, Democrats in Washington, in a lot of cases, are like going along with bu as business as usual. You know, and, you know, I, I, and I feel like that, that this moment, you know, calls for a party that is both a extremely aggressive and pushing back against the authoritarian threat, but be welcoming and broad to people that are part of a pro-democracy coalition and, and willing to, you know, maybe sacrifice some of, you know, what your typical in interest group DC politics, you know, in service of um, maintaining a broad popularity so that they can keep out um, Donald Trump. I, you look at Hungary, for example, there's an election coming up this year. I, I defer to Dr. Fukuyama on this as an expert, but you have this coalition of, of, of literally all, like quasi fascists and socialists and, you know, free marketers and moderates, you know, who are all pushing back against Orban. Uh, and, and I would like to see that here. And it doesn't feel like the Democratic Party is, is trending that direction. Um, you know, the other thing is just to, you know, speak, speak to the point that Melissa was bringing up is that, um, you know, th there are some narrow things on voting, vote counting that the Democrats could do. And, you know, you look at there was an 1876 election that got thrown to the House. And after that, they wrote this really convoluted Electoral Count Act that, that helped people figure out how we go about counting the votes. This doesn't address some of what Dr. Fukuyama was talking about, about voting rights. You know, but it does address maybe our more pressing, urgent threat, which is that there is a repeat of 2020 and 2024 and, you know, that, and that the Republicans try to monkey with the count. Um, and I, I think that, you know, sometimes maybe sacrificing the perfect, you know, um, you know, not letting the perfect be the enemy of the good and, and making some changes and adding whatever safeguards we can within, you know, the scope of the power that Democrats have right now. Um, I, I think would be smart because the clock is ticking on that. Uh, you know, we're, we're about 11 months away from very likely the Democrats not being able to do anything about this. Actually, if I could interject, uh, as a political scientist, it seems to me pretty clear that the single biggest political threat we face uh, in America right now is uh, the attempt to corrupt the integrity of future elections and that that really ought to be the overriding objective of the Democrat and then of the Democrats and then of any Republicans that are actually still on board with protecting American democracy. The problem they face, though, is that what may be clear to an activist or to a political scientist is just not clear to a lot of Americans. Uh, this is not at the top of anybody's list, you know, of things that need to be done. They're worried about uh, crime. They're worried about inflation. They're worried about, you know, the border. They're worried about a lot of other uh, issues. 
And the uh, coming uh, midterm elections and the 2024 election is not going to be won by, you know, uh, a kind of resounding support for future electoral integrity. That's just not that's just not what's going to win the Democrats elections. And so, in a sense, the stakes could never have been higher uh, as to how these elections are going to you know, turn out. But the grounds on which they're going to be contested are going to be sort of politics as usual, uh, because that's really, you know, how uh, ordinary voters are are thinking about things. And so it's a very difficult kind of tactical question for the Democrats to negotiate as to how much emphasis they want to give this issue, which objectively is important, but, you know, as as a practical political matter may not uh, may not be their path to power. Melissa, could you talk a bit about that? I mean, the, the, the Democratic Party, we've seen the Republican Party obviously going through this pro-Trump purity movement for the past year and, and before that, but it's really the, the big lie version of it for the past year. Um, and I mentioned at a previous week-to-week program, I think it was the head of the Illinois Democratic, or excuse me, Illinois Republican Party or some high official there. They were asked if they were, you know, what sort of litmus tests they would have for candidates. And they said something like, oh, we're not going to have a litmus test, but uh, we are going to, you know, they will be asked, do you believe the 2020 election was stolen? Um, what talk, talk a bit about politically in the Democratic Party and, and their own purity push that they've had. And obviously after two years now of, of you know, racial upheaval, of, of uh, you know, a lot of racial reckoning going on, um, as well as other things that that really has has amplified the 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 progressive wing of the party, and is that making it impossible or very difficult for the folks who who do want to be able to work with the Liz Cheneys and the Adam Kinzingers and and others to get kind of a new center that can can really kind of solidify um, or protect democracy. Well, so at least in swing districts um, or districts that are a little more up in the air, we, we still don't really know what the districts are going to look like since the, since the census. Everybody's, I think, still drawing and accepting changes. But but it seems like a, for Republicans, right, You a lot of them have to thread a needle, right? You want to appeal to the um, the energy, maybe, of the, of the Trump voters, but also um, you don't want to lose independents or people who um, are more traditionally conservative, right? So how do you do that? Well, one way to do that, one way to get all of those people aligned with you as a Republican is to have a really um, good campaign against your Democrat opponent, right? Because people often vote for somebody um, because they're not somebody else, right? So to the extent that Democrats are giving Republicans very juicy targets um, to amass support um, on the other side from, uh, that is probably not that helpful. And so you might see someone who, like, for example, the, the governor of Virginia, who just really made the election about um, and it was able to to win in Virginia by making the election really about his Democrat opponent, and you were and you know and was able to sort of line up a uh, maybe unlikely coalition, um, you know, behind him. And so that kind of thing may prevent some Trump supporters, some Trump supporting candidates or politicians from really facing a reckoning within their own party um, by sort of constantly being able to turn the spotlight elsewhere and talk about defunding the police and some of the other, you know, kind of ideas that really, um, to Dr. Fukuyama's point, are really top of mind 
for voters. And so Democrats may not be doing themselves many favors in certain districts by by sort of allowing the other side to line up against them. Uh, let's talk about the January 6th committee, the House Select Committee on the January 6th attack. Um, here at the Commonwealth Club, we've had programs in the past year separately with uh, committee members Liz Cheney, Zoe Lof, excuse me, Zoe Lofgren, and we heard about the committee's goals and, and processes. And there were complaints toward the end of 2021 about, you know, well, what are they doing? Are they doing anything? They need to be more aggressive. And then right near the end of the year, we started getting a slew of subpoenas and, you know, talk of criminal contempt and such. I'd like to hear from each of you and start with you, Melissa, just stick with you first. But what do you think of the work of the committee so far? And then kind of what do you think we can expect in this next you know, they say they hope to have an initial draft, perhaps, out of a report in summer and then a, a, a final report uh, in fall. What do you, so what do you think of their work so far and what do you think we can expect before they wrap it up? Well, I think, you know, there have been some there's been some criticism that there that the indictments, for example, so far have been really against. And these are these are indictments by the DOJ, not the committee, but um, that the, there have been a lot of indictments uh, against the sort of folks who were there and stormed the Capitol. So rightfully so. But that that the people who called for it, the people who sort of arranged for it, the people who planted those seeds and incited it have yet to be really called out or charged with anything for um, for their involvement. And so one of the things the committee has done um, is really uncover a lot of that involvement. I can't tell you what's going to happen because every day something is bananas. Like, I don't know about y'all, but I did not see those text messages coming. Like, that was crazy. So it seems like every, every time we peel, something comes out that is just, wow. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it's hard to know because it's the whole thing is just kind of bonkers. But, um, you know, I think a lot of people are watching to see what the committee can do to inform um, charges against or expose people who are uh, not there necessarily in the Capitol, but people who are sort of behind this effort. I think that's what people are are sort of looking to this committee to help with. Frank, what's your take on the committee? Well, um, there is a poll, I forget by Pew or what organization, in the past week about whether people were actually uh, following the committee's work and, and whether they had been persuaded by the, any of the evidence that had come out that there was actually an active conspiracy. And it was very discouraging because there didn't seem to be uh, much movement on that front, that if you believe the election was stolen or you're a Trump supporter, uh, almost nothing that the committee had put forward had really changed your mind. So this is part of this phenomenon of motivated reasoning that's been plaguing our politics, that you want to believe something and you can't be deterred by any amount of empirical evidence uh, away from that. Now, uh, that's today. I do think, however, that, you know, there may be such an accumulation of further facts that will come out that it will penetrate, you know, to some extent, you're obviously not going to get the hardcore MAGA supporters, but you know, there are a lot of people that are not heavily committed in that direction that may still be, you know, uh, approachable by evidence. Uh, that would be the hope. And I think the committee probably could do a lot more to get some of this stuff out there. I mean, they've been talking about holding the hearings in prime time, and that might, uh, you know, that might work. Tim, what about you? I, I've I've wanted to give the committee some some leeway to do their job. Uh, you know, I, I thought that they're, you know, I thought that they, um, 
made, not this committee, but Congress made a mistake by not rushing through the second impeachment. I, I think that there might have been a window where they could have gotten more Republican votes before all the Republican senators realized that their their voters you know, wanted them to stand with Trump or whatever. You know, you saw this change in the Lindsey Grahams of the world over the course of the week. I, I think it was so clear what happened on January 6th. You didn't need to do investigation and, and possibly they could have rushed through an impeachment. Once that window is missed, you know, now I think the January 6th committee has to actually do their job. And I was encouraged by the subpoena, you know, and get all the facts that they can get. I was encouraged by the subpoenas. You know, some of this is going to take longer than people want. Uh, Bannon obviously stands in contempt of court, for one example. He's not going to, that trial isn't, I don't think, till July, right? So, you know, you have to be patient with some of this stuff. Um, I, the, the, what I've heard is that they've gotten better cooperation than you might think out of some people from within the White House. And I think their main job now is to, is to detail for the public, you know, just how unconscionable the former president's actions were on that day. I think there's a lot we don't know still about what President Trump was doing between, you know, his speech on the mall and, you know, that very, very late video that came out, you know, kind of half praising the, the rioters, half telling them to uh, to go home. Um, and so I think their job is is to you know, hold as many of the organizers as they can accountable uh, to Melissa's point. Um, and focus on focus on them to reveal as much as they can about the uh, about Trump's actions that day, and, and to publicize that and use that as a cudgel um, against you know all of those that have been enabling them. Uh, that's the, this committee's job over the next ten months. If they do that well, then you know I think we can look back and, and think this is a worthwhile endeavor. If we're in the same place, you know, in in October that we are today, I think we'll feel like it was it didn't do its purpose. Melissa, talk about the Justice Department's role in this. As, as was mentioned, there's stuff the committee can do and can recommend, but they're, of course, not prosecuting people. Um, the Justice Department, I guess, is prosecuting more than 700 defendants, uh, said to be the largest prosecution in, in its history. Um, do you think just literally the prosecution of those 700 people will have some deterrent effect, at least from the folks who you know are kind of on the Johnny Tremaine cosplay sort of uh wing of the country or does it matter like as i said by someone else uh, it doesn't matter that they're not going after the ringleaders they're not going after the planners and the financiers etc well i mean all that is going to help but even just for the people on the ground i mean one of the things that's really kind of startling about a lot of these charges is that you know sort of defacing um federal property and attempting to you know with with criminal intent impede federal um, proceedings and official proceedings, these are are charges that carry 10 years up to 20 years in prison as as punishment. And so they have a pretty big stick to wield to get folks to plead out um, or to, you know, to negotiate a deal. And what you've seen is because these penalties are pretty dramatic, potentially, um, that people have really groveled, frankly, in front of federal judges saying, I'm so, you know, I was, I lost my mind. Um, I was following Donald Trump. That's been a big defense as I was doing what my president told me to do. So how can it possibly be an interference with, with federal proceedings? And that's been an interesting one as well, but really forcing them to very publicly state um, that they were wrong and that they, you know, were mistaken and that, you know, that it did not have the desired effect, et cetera. Um, you know, it can't hurt it to have, you know, the people who were that fired up 
um, be forced to at least make the argument, whether it's genuine or not, um, that they suffered from some kind of temporary insanity. Um, so you got to believe that that, you know, didn't, it didn't hurt. It might not have helped as much as people would have liked. Um, but, uh, but, but I think at least going after the rank and file for starters, um, is something that I know people watching people like me who are totally horrified by, by what happened are like, good. I'm glad to see, you know, that, that people are being dealt with who were actually the ones breaking and defiling our capital. Can I just, I, I just want to add one thing that I, I have a, just a minor, a very minor disagreement with that. I, I think that the people that were breaking the capital and defiling the capital and the people that were rioting, you know, should, should be held to account with the law. I, I do worry a little bit about the overemphasis on this, and we'll see how it plays out in a year. Uh, you know, like so far, I think the person that has gotten the longest sentence, you know, was the dude with the horns. And, shaman. I, you know, the shaman. And it's like, I, to, to my knowledge, the shaman didn't actually attack, physically attack anyone. I, what he did was totally inappropriate, right? But but the shaman is not the problem here, right? I mean, the shaman was a victim in some in some cases of a lie that was being perpetrated by people to stay in, the people that wanted to stay in power. And so I, anyway, it's where I agree with most is that I, I think that if we end up in a place where it's only the shaman types that get punished, uh, you know, I think that there will rightly be, you know, a lot of anger about that, um, uh, you know, because uh, that, you know, our, our long, the threats that we face, you know, are, are coming from those, you know, who are stoking this, you know, the Ali Alexanders and the Alex Joneses and the Matt Gateses and the people in Congress and the Steve Bannons um, and, and some of these, you know, and then, and then, you know, there were the organized groups like the Oath Keepers, those folks should all be held accountable. But, you know, some of these folks were. You know, are, are are at some level victims of, of all of those people's menacing actions. Frank, talk if you will about the international reaction to this and what it means and perhaps pretends for the United States uh, leadership of of kind of any movement in world. Well, sure. So this is part of a larger global phenomenon of the weakening of democracy. Uh, Freedom House, the organization that tracks this, has noted that for fifteen years in a row. The aggregate uh, amount of democracy in the world has fallen, uh, and particularly in the last year because of what's been going on in the United States and India. Uh, and, you know, you can see other countries picking up uh, these bad practices of contesting uh, what were otherwise free and fair uh, elections. This happened uh, last summer in Peru. The populist president of Brazil, Jair Bolsonaro, is threatening to do that. If he loses the election, uh, he'll behave just like uh, Trump did. But the thing that worries me the most, actually, is the geostrategic uh, consequences. Part of this anti-democratic global movement is the rise of two big authoritarian powers, Russia and China. Both of those countries have territorial claims on other democracies, on Ukraine and Russia's case, and on Taiwan in uh, the case of China. And they've been, uh, you know, preparing uh, possibly for military action. And I actually don't think it's a it's an accident that uh, you've had this huge buildup of Russian military forces on Ukraine's borders a year after this January 6th uh, event. Uh, let me just read you this quotation from a Russian uh, observer uh, that was published just recently. He said, even though the weakening of the West has been going on for some time, 
The current crisis indicates that the process has moved in a quali- to a qualitatively new level, and it would therefore be foolish not to seize the opportunity. In other words, the correlation of forces has shifted. Russia feels strong and confident, and they look at things like the capital uprising and the continued polarization in the United States, and they say, look, the United States can't pass a budget. You know, they can't basically work their way out of a uh, you know, a paper bag. And this is the opportunity to do things that we've been wanting to do for a long time, but felt we couldn't because the balance of power was not in our favor. And now it is. And so I think that this is a direct connection between our domestic polarization, uh, the delegitimization of democracy and of American democracy, and the weakening of the American uh, geopolitical position in uh, in the world as a whole, and I'm very, very worried about that. Um, that obviously impacts whatever the current administration can do internationally. I want to talk a bit about na- local, uh, domestically. Uh, in an AP story this week, White House officials insisted that President Biden's relative silence, quote, should not be interpreted as complacency with the growing movement to rewrite history surrounding the January 6th riot. They say the president believes the most effective way to combat Trump election denialism, and domestic extremism is to prove to the rest of the country and to the world that government can work, unquote. So, Tim, we're toast then, right? I mean, if that's what they think is going to protect democracy is... We're relying on government working to save the democracy? Uh Uh-oh. Yeah, look, I've been sympathetic to Biden's position on this. He ran on uniting the country. Uh, He was, uh, you know, when a lot of people mocked him that that was the theme of his campaign early in the Democratic primary and said this is ridiculous, uh, he stayed the course. Um, It it paid off for him. It it turned out that there was a silent majority in this country that was tired of all the nonsense, that just wanted a steady hand. um, And that that worked for him. Uh, And so I think that you can't then get into the White House and start you know, running a flamethrower campaign against Republicans. So I think that he's been very prudent in the way that he's dealt with the Trump issue, talking about it on occasion, but not really that often, not at all akin to how Trump talked about Obama and Bush and and other, and you know, his Democratic opponents. I think he's been very open to trying to get bipartisan things done, the COVID stimulus and, you know, then um, didn't end up being, but then, you know, the infrastructure bill did. Um, And so... You know, I've respected that point of view. I thought that his pivot today to a much more direct attack on Trump was really appropriate. Um, I I don't feel like he was getting the credit that he deserved, um, frankly, from either the media or the right for the fact that he's pulled a lot of punches and done his best to kind of offer an olive branch. It didn't seem like he was getting any credit for that, which I think is outrageous, to be honest. He deserves, you know, a lot of um, credit. you know, respect for the way that he handled himself and comported himself after, you know, just the awful mess that he was dealt by his predecessor. Uh, But now we're looking ahead to a midterm year. And so I I don't think that he should obsess about Trump and talk about him every day. But but I I think a clear, resolved message about what it is, about the threats that are coming from the right is necessary. And I think he's got to do that. And also, to, to Frank's point, you know, run a competent government on popular issues that are normal politics, dealing with inflation, dealing with COVID. That's a big job. It's really hard. But, um, but you know, given the stakes here, uh, he's got to figure out a way to do both well this year. 
Um, and, and I think that they obviously hit some speed bumps last year in the competent government side of things, you know, between from, in sort of the period from Afghanistan through inflation and Delta and, and the fallout. Melissa, talk a bit more, if you would, about the, the impact of the insurrection and the former president who would not go away, who would not exit the news cycle. How, how did that, has that impacted President Biden's first year? Well, I, you know, to some degree, it's, you know, it's not just Donald Trump who's out there keeping himself in the headlines. I mean, we've seen Democrats, um, you know, maybe to to excess, really keep talking about him in their campaigns. In California, right here, we had, you know, the recall election, and it was the... Um, the Trump recall, basically, is how Governor Newsom's campaign um, styled it. Um, I, I thought a little unnecessarily. I mean, you could you can attack the recall, but without attacking Trump, but whatever. Uh, anyway, that that was how they went about it. And he, of course, Newsom won overwhelmingly, but then you saw in other places like in Virginia where a reliance, maybe an over-reliance on like, you know, sort of tying this person to the party of Trump, the you know, your Republican opponent to the party of Trump, um, you know, did not answer the questions about, you know, sort of local issues that people were concerned about. And so um, not only has Trump managed to keep himself in the news, but I think Democrats have, um, you know, maybe excessively uh, kept him in the news as well in their efforts to, um, you know, to, to paint the Republican Party as sort of just the party of Trump. Which in some cases, are, you know, I'm sure is true, but uh, but um, but maybe at the expense of, of very specific issues that that people care about. In looking at where things could develop or how they could develop, I want to start by noting that something like 15 years ago, Christianity Today magazine, so an evangelical Protestant magazine, ran an article asking if evangelicalism was descending into folk religion, you know, meaning forsaking doctrine and orthodoxy and basically becoming more of just whatever you think, that's it. It's as long as you call yourself a, a Christian and vote for the hard right stuff. Um, I, I kind of wanted to apply that to the Republican Party. I mean, we all remember the, when the Republican Party, whether you agreed with it or disagreed with it, was a party with 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 very serious thinkers. And, 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 and I mean, it was really exciting sometimes to either be a part of or to watch these discussions and debates go on within conservative circles. Um, I mean, Tim, start with you. I mean, is the Republican Party salvageable as, as a party of ideas and, and, and as a platform, or are they just like the American version of United Russia? Yeah, salvageable is, a, is tough because long term, yes, hopefully uh, the country needs to have two functioning parties. Um, I, I think it probably will never really look like it did before, and it might look more like kind of a European nationalist conservative party than, than, you know, sort of classically liberal, you know, party um, that, that, that was what the Republicans were more akin to here. Um, but, you know, right now in the short term, no. And I got this big laugh last week and I saw Breitbart, which is the home to like the MAGA nationalist, you know, uh, media site ran a headline about how D David McCormick was going to be the MAGA candidate 
in the Pennsylvania Senate primary. Now, this is this is a guy that is, runs one of the biggest hedge funds in, in the world, maybe the biggest. Um, his, his wife is Dina Powell, who went to serve in the Trump administration. I mean, he in any other era, you know, uh, you know, if you just listen to a person like this talk, would talk sound like any other Wall Street kind of Republican, deregulation, tax cuts, socially moderate, lives in, you know, lives in the, the New York City, right? But that now all these folks, you know, have to position themselves as being MAGA. The nice thing is, and MAGA doesn't mean anything, right? Like all it means is that you're for Trump. And to your friend at the, at the Illinois party's comment that you're willing to say that you're concerned that there might be some irregularities about the election and that you're concerned about the border, right? Like that's it. Like those are, those are the issues. Those are the issues. Um, and, and besides that, it's, it's sort of a grab bag. Um, and so yeah, like in that sense, yeah, the current Republican party is very nihilistic. It's a party that is all about power and, and it's centered around this one, one person. And, and, you know, there, so there's not really any room for, you know, kind of intellectual, there's no point in any intellectual debate because it doesn't really matter where people fall on various things as long as they're, you know, right, you know, on the, you know, two major tenets of the faith. I'm reminded of President Eisenhower's 1956 statement that we've all seen circulate on social media, quote, if a political party does not have as its foundation or does not have its foundation in the determination to advance a cause that is right and that is moral, then it is not a political party. It is merely a conspiracy to seize power. Frank, are we seeing this come true in this party? Much more bizarre is going on. Uh, if you look at the role that uh, anti-vaxxers are playing in the party right now, uh, for many Republicans, that is the central issue. Uh, and how opposition to vaccines, a vaccine that was developed, you know, in the Trump administration, uh, uh, how that came to be seen as so critical to so many conservatives, I think is not explainable through any kind of sociological uh, analysis. It's certainly not uh, something that derives from Republican principles. Uh, I think you really have to go to something like social psychology to understand it, that it's become such a marker of conservative identity that nobody can break from that without you know, undermining that identity. And one of the absolutely fascinating things that's happened in the last uh, couple of weeks is that Trump himself on several occasions has said, you know, I got vaccinated and uh, he admitted, I think he admitted to being boosted as well. And he said that everybody should be, and that he got booed at one of his rallies, you know? And so it's like, he's created this monster that he himself can't even control at this point that is just kind of spinning out of control, completely, you know, divorced from any kind of underlying ideology that, that used to define conservatism. Um, actually, if I could jump in on this as well, I mean, of course, agree with everything the other two panelists have said. I, I'm hoping, um, and I've been saying this for a long time, but um, so I, I don't know that uh, it might just be me wishful thinking, um, but I have had a be in my bonnet about political parties for quite a while. And, um, you know, questions about why states are involved in political primaries at all, which are party functions and not really state functions uh, and often cost money to taxpayers, even though they're not a part of the party. Um, you know, I think, you know, 
uh, having large numbers of people disaffected from either party. And Gallup, um, Gallup numbers are out. It looks like nationwide what's happening is something that we've seen in California for a long time, which is that the Republican Party is shrinking. But the Democratic Party isn't growing. It's just um, creating a huge um, number of people, some 40-something percent of people who don't identify with either party. And those people eventually will be, you know, such a mass that they have to go somewhere. And so asking questions about why political parties are so entrenched, why states sort of certify and sort of get involved with and pay for primary elections, why not have open primaries? I mean, questions about the strength of political parties and, you know, why it's so hard to get on ballots and maybe investigating, you know, how to get on ballots in, in regions or nationwide um, is something that people will increasingly turn to as the Republican Party, you know, sort of shrinks, but becomes this small, very, um, very particular group of folks. Um, a year or so ago, USC political science professor Dan Schnur was asked on this program about Governor Newsom's leadership during the pandemic. He was being criticized at the moment, kind of getting rocky there for a while. And he said there's both an issue of good leadership, but also what he called the need for good followership. Um, Tim, and maybe this goes back to my comment about kind of folk religions and populism. Does it matter what people in think tanks and on NPR and in public forums like the Commonwealth Club and in academia think and say when, this is going to sound so elitist, but I'll, t I'll swing with it, when the masses aren't listening to them and don't care, it's still coming down to how much I'm paying for gas and uh, he entertains me, so I voted for him. Well, I don't want to burst anybody's bubble here, but I do not know that this panel is going to be what saves our democracy. I think don't know that it matters <laughs> to the extent to which it matters, but um, uh, it doesn't hurt. Um, but I don't know how much it helps. Um, I, look, I, I do think with the, with the Republican Party, there, it, there certainly is a bottom-up problem. And it speaks right to Dr. Fugama's point there about the vaccines, right? Uh, you know, I, I think that um, that you saw this moment last year, um, you know, that we've been talking about where Republicans started acting normal um, and saying saying the things that, you know, you know, we've all wanted them to say, you know, so that it was so refreshing for a minute to hear Mitch McConnell, like, talk as if, you know, he was living in the same reality that we all were. Um, but the problem was they've all had to back away because that's that's not how the reality of their voters saw. And so, that, so there is this bottom-up, you know, issue where where the people that are trying to nudge the voters in the right direction end up getting getting pushed out, you know. And you've seen this. I'm very concerned. You know, Liz Cheney is a you know prime example. It's that you know I was always a Rhino moderate Republican. She was a hardline conservative. I didn't like her. We were on opposite sides of the party. We fought. Um, uh, but you know now she is out because she goes against you know one of the one of the planks of the of the faith. And so, you know, how, how do leaders nudge the right direction? I'm always hesitant to say nothing matters. Um, I, I do think that we've seen a lot of cowardice. Um, and I think that there have been a lot of Republican leaders who maybe had the opportunity to nudge enough of their voters the right direction. Maybe you can't get to, you know, the most dogged adherence of the faith, but that you could get to enough of the voters, you know, to, to move things, right? I, you know, I said that, like, look, had Joe Biden, you know, had, had enough Republican leaders gotten behind Joe Biden that he won instead of, you know, narrowly in three states. He, he won, you know, uh, closer to a, like George H.W. Bush 88 style landslide. Trump would be gone. Like it wouldn't matter whether 20 percent of the people really wanted a Trump dictatorship because the numbers would have been so in their disfavor. So I do think their, their leadership matters. People's actions matters. History is contingent. 
but, but right now the power in the Republican Party is not within the leaders. It's, it's, it's coming bottom up from the voters. Um, a few months ago, George Will was at the Commonwealth Club. He was in a conversation with Tim's bulwark uh, colleague, Jonathan Last. And George Will was asked about the problems in, or he was talking about the problems in England when gin became cheap and plentiful and was having all these deleterious effects on family and, and work and such. And uh, they passed some laws to try to deal with the problem. George Will said, quote, that's not what took care of gin. John Wesley took care of gin. We need several John Wesleys, unquote. So Frank is a portion of dealing with America's kind of ill, ill temperament now. I mean, is a portion of the solution not political, but social or spiritual? Yeah, or possibly intellectual. So uh, since I am an intellectual, I feel bound to defend the role of intellectuals in public life. And you can see a lot of examples of this. For example, the, the Reagan revolution was underpinned by a revolution in economics that was led by people like Milton Friedman and Gary Becker and, you know, a lot of these very uh, powerful, uh, academically respectable Chicago school uh, economists that defended free markets and so forth. And over the next 30 years, a lot of the policies did not come from the grassroots. They came from, you know, people that were very smart and tried to work these things out uh, in principle. One thing that is kind of notable about the current American right is that they don't have a real intellectual base. Um, you know, the Claremont Institute has been, I think, sort of floundering around trying to market itself as, you know, the intellectual, the heavyweight intellectual underpinning for Trumpism. Uh, and I think it's come out you know, really incoherently. And it does mean that there's going to be a longer term weakness in this movement because it really isn't going to be based on a, a kind of coherent set of ideas. And uh, so maybe that does give a little bit too much uh, importance to, you know, to intellectuals. But I do think that in the end, um, uh, ideas count in politics, even if you don't see the immediate uh, impact. Let's talk maybe about generational change. Uh, in 2018, Frank, you interviewed Yasha Monk at the Commonwealth Club. Um, and one thing that really has stuck with me from that program was a study that he cited about the declining devotion to democracy in the United States, generation by generation. So from the greatest generation through the millennials, there was a steadily declining uh, importance given to democracy and to living in a democracy and a growing openness even to military rule. Um, and I guess I, I, I keep thinking of that every time I, you know, you kind of get the response of, oh, the young people are going to save us. It's like the young people, according to that survey, would hit democracy over the head with a shovel at these at this point. Um, are, is anyone optimistic? <laughs> I see it. I'm starting to sound like JVL, Tim. I'm getting pretty pessimistic. But is, is uh, what are some reasons for optimism? Let's, let's put it that way. Um, that America will be able to come out of this uh, I mean, you know, we've been through civil war. We've been through, uh, you know, the rise of the KKK or the re-rise of the K resurgence of the KKK in the 1920s and, and other things. And we have slowly built a stronger democracy and expanded suffrage and people are, you know, freer and richer. But um, what are the reasons to be optimistic now? Well, I think that there's a couple of things. Um We've stacked our institutions in ways that give extra voice and power to activists and extremists. I mean, the 
the spread of political primaries in both parties is a great example of that. You wouldn't have had the Tea Party if you hadn't had the shift to, to popular primaries. And, well, California, that's a whole other uh, Commonwealth Club panel. Uh, we've got all these populist measures like uh, uh, initiatives and recalls and so forth that really do not work as uh, as advertised. And I do think that there are some institutional changes that you could imagine that would actually moderate our politics. I am in favor of getting rid of our first-past-the-post voting system and replacing it either with ranked choice voting or with, you know, going all the way to proportional representation, which I think would actually create very, very different incentives for politicians that would not drive them to the extremes, but, you know, uh, force them more to, uh, to the center. The other thing is that uh, you know, we are living in a political age dominated by activists and by, you know, people that take uh, uh, extreme positions. There's still a fairly large number of people in the middle that are not so politicized. And I think that, you know, if you can find the po politician that can really appeal to that group, I think you've still got a political base for fixing at least some of the, the worst excesses that we've seen in the last few years. How about you, Tim? Reasons for optimism? I was looking for the optimism there in that answer. I was like, maybe <laughs> we'll find a politician. I'm pretty pessimistic in general. So I, I, this is a bit of a stretch. But I, my number one reason for optimism is that, that a lot of our biggest threats are related to the psychological pathologies of one insane person. Um, and like for all of the other, you know, I, I think that that, that Trump was both symptom and cause. I think the Republican Party has a lot of other deep-seated flaws that aren't related to him. But, but like our most existential threats are really related to him and and his complete lack of shame. I, you know, it's hard to imagine, you know, even like a Ron DeSantis type, like doing having the shamelessness that Trump did to you know pretend as if to go on for years pretending to, as if he had won an election that he knew he lost i mean this is a superpower of narcissism and shame that not a lot of people share so so I, that's one reason for optimism is that is that hopefully by continuing to isolate this one person at his little golf club um you know we can move on to to other fixing other problems as far as the uh, next generation, so my Snapchat show is targeted to like Zoomers, right? And so I hear a lot from from young from Zoomers. Um, uh, I'm getting old myself, so I definitely am not of this uh, clique. But um, I, I my I have some concerns about the trends go, looking forward. You know, there is some anti-democratic trends. Like these folks that did not live through the Cold War, they do not share the fear of you know communism, socialism that we do. Uh, you know, so there's a lot of concerns there. But, but there is a deep sense of, like, desire for justice. You know, there, there is the, the, the diversity, the demographic change within that, within that cohort is strong, um, and I think that's helpful. So, you know, while I, I am not sure that, you know, we're, we have in store for us, like, a reversion, you know, towards the type of comedy that, you know, we, we saw you know, where the two parties, you know, people used to complain that they weren't even that similar, they were too similar, right? I, I don't think we're, we're looking at a reversion of that, but I, I, I wouldn't just throw in the towel on the younger generation. I, I think that there are going to be some some political texts they have that, that are going to be uncomfortable and scary for folks that, that lived through different eras. But, uh, but I, I do think that there's an abiding sense of, of, of desire for, for justice. I do not think that this is a cohort that's going to want to, you know, exacerbate 
you know, fascistic rule. It's interesting you mentioned the the parties unable to tell them or be told apart. In the 1960s, my father was a pastor of Methodist churches down in South Central Wisconsin. He had two small churches, filled them up every week. And uh, so he was asked to run for Congress. And he was telling me this years later. I wasn't even alive at the time. And he was saying, you know, I, I was pretty sure I could win, but, uh, you know, he was a pastor of two small churches. He couldn't have afforded it. But he said, I don't remember which party it was. You know, it could have been the Republicans. It could have been the Democrats. In South Central Wisconsin at that time, they both would have been roughly central centrist parties. Um, I just want to just jump in run and say this, and this, is, this isn't really about the younger generation who, um, you know, I, I don't envy <laughs> uh, in, in so many ways. But I, I will say this, and it's it's not been a perfect five years or so um, since um, President Trump was inaugurated. But the system has worked in a lot of ways, right? He, I remember when he was elected being in the newsroom and people going, oh my God, like this is it. <laughs> like this is, you know, it's over. Um, but it wasn't, right? There are checks on the president's power that both sort of kept things going despite whatever was happening in the Oval Office. And again, not perfect. I think a lot of people wish he had not been elected, but that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is the institutions held the judicial system, um, held the, you know, our legislatures held. And now we've seen this horrible thing happen on January 6th, but people are being prosecuted. There's a committee, it's rolling slowly, but maybe they feel like they have to in order to make sure they don't uh, sort of kick the beehive and try to make sure they've got a lot of evidence for whatever it is that they do. But, but things are, are happening the way they're supposed to happen uh, in terms of people being held accountable and people's powers being limited, even President Biden's powers being limited. Like assuming you think that he was uh, improperly appointed as president, he doesn't actually have the power to change every single person's life in meaningful ways, right? He, he's circumscribed, right? So you still have your legislature, you still have your Senate, you still have your judiciary to make sure, even if you don't think that person is legitimately elected, that they can't do too much harm um, to you because because of the way our system is set up. So I would just say that that for me, and again, I'm not thrilled with the way everything has been going. I don't think it's been awesome, but I do... Um, I do think that the you know that the, the the skeleton that that we have in terms of our you know balance of powers and our separation has been you know largely keeping things on on track. Okay, so an exit question for all for each of you uh, or for all of you, the same question, but uh, we'll start with you, Frank. Um, if twenty twenty four comes along, and well, first of all, if twenty twenty four even happens, but let's just say let's assume it happens. There's an election and the Republican nominee, possibly Donald Trump, um, doesn't win. And in other words, there's an opportunity to try something like this again. Are we better prepared to handle it? Or are the forces who would go along with that going to be in a stronger position because they've had their trial run? The next time, so to speak, do you think we're better prepared? The people that would perpetrate that kind of, uh, you know, election fraud are as we speak, getting much better prepared. Uh, it was very amateurish when it happened in, you know, after November uh, 2020. But the next time around, they're going to have their people in all these key positions like, you know, uh, Raffensperger and Georgia is going to be replaced by a Trump loyalist. And 
they'll just be more experienced and they'll know what to anticipate. And so I think in that sense, they'll be much better prepared. Uh, but the opponents are going to be better prepared too. Um, they're going to be anticipating this. Uh, and that's what really is frightening about that situation uh, because, you know, there's real possibilities for violence, certainly for really mass mobilization of people very, very angry uh, at each other. And I think that that's really what worries a lot of people, not that we'll have civil war. That's very hard to imagine, but we could have violence and we could descend into something looking much more like the 60s with, you know, political assassinations and uh, and so forth. So that, you know, is something really to watch and to be very uh, vigilant for. Melissa, your take on the next time. Well, you know, I, of course, agree with everything um, Dr. Fukuyama just said, but I also think that, um, I don't know about y'all, but for me, I was, so I was, here actually literally sitting right where I am right now <laughs> doing some work when my husband came in and said that there are people were attacking the Capitol. Now I'm not on Twitter. He is. And I thought it was just more like Twitter hyperbole where, you know, everything's a big deal. And so I was like, yeah, whatever. That sounds like some Twitter stuff. Um, so I was really shocked when I came and he goes, come look. And so there's like everyone else I was watching on CNN or whatever you were watching it on um, and going, I can't believe this is actually real. And I think for a, I'm not the only one who what who sort of didn't think that that was possible. Right. That, you know, people can leave crappy comments all over Facebook if they want or tweet things. But but this is, you know, a, a, you know, IRL, as the kids would say, you know, this is an actual attack. And I think for a lot of Americans, we were surprised that this was even something on the table. And so now that it is on the table, um, it's not just like the, you know, party extremists who are prepared and and feel vigilant about this. But I think a lot of even nonpartisan people or, or, or people who, you know, consider themselves a little, little more moderate um, are also concerned um, about the integrity of the elections. And so um, I think, you know, the hope is that, that, that people will pay attention to what's happening in terms of election laws and other things. And so, uh, you know, when someone says we're going to go, you know, change this, we're going to stop this, People take that more seriously, maybe report it to the authorities, um, uh, you know, in the world that we live in now where that's a thing that could happen. And Tim, the final response. For my wheelhouse. Um, I think we're much worse prepared, not optimism. I, I, I think that both of those were rosy assessments. Um, I think that um, the Republicans are likely to have a very big year in 2022. Uh, and I think that that will um, sweep in a lot of people who are, are much more amenable to going along with something like what happened in 2020 to, to Frank's point, uh, not just to Georgia, but all these other states, secretaries of states, house of Repre you know, local house of representatives. Um, uh, and, and, and I think that the types of people who are not likely to go along with it are, are right now being pushed out of the party and, and are, are going to find themselves losing primary campaigns. Um, I, I think that we, um, you know, got lucky that Biden won basically like a series of coin flips. Like he won three states very close. I won 7 million popular vote, but three states were very, very close. Had two of those coin flips gone the other way. And had it only been, say, Georgia last time, you know, rather than three states that needed to be flipped, I think we would have been in a much more serious situation. I think we still would have held because at that time, Democrats, you know, had the House and, and various states, I don't think they're going to. Republicans are going to have the House and the Senate next time. I think they'll control most of these state houses, they'll control most of these secretaries of states. And so if it ends up being a close election, 
Um, I think that we are headed straight down a path to a constitutional crisis um, uh, that, that could lead to street violence. And, uh, you know, who knows? It, it wouldn't be till any, you know, it wouldn't be lo- look like anything since 1876. I, I hope that doesn't happen. I, I, I'm not saying that's definitely going to happen, but, but I think that the percentage chance that that happens is much, much higher than we should feel comfortable with. Well, on that cheery note, we have come to the end of our program. For those of you who tuned in, expecting to learn more about the NFL playoffs, sorry about that. However, if you want to know more about the January 6th uh, uh, insurrection, as well as ongoing efforts in the, related to that, you can watch our live stream today at 3 p.m. Pacific time, featuring the Atlantic writer Barton Gilman discussing his reporting on the insurrection. I want to thank our excellent panel today, Melissa Kane, Dr. Francis Fukuyama, and Tim Miller for a great conversation about January 6th, past, present, and future. Thanks to all of you for listening and watching online. Stay safe and stay healthy. We'll see you again soon. Bye. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.